0: Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this marvelous uh, epistle of the Hebrews. Uh, Lord, there is so much here, and it's so deep and so rich um, that I struggle to figure out how to communicate uh, the essence of it. And so, Father, as we continue through chapter 2, we ask that you would help us by your Spirit to to understand uh, what was said in its original context, uh, we ask that you would help us to, uh, to bridge the gap of, of some 2,000 years in, in context and culture, um, that we would be able to understand how uh, this applies to us. Uh, we thank you uh, for the wealth of information concerning Jesus that this uh, book contains. Father, we pray that through our studying of Christ, um, that we would lift him high in our hearts, not because he needs to be lifted high, but because he is greater than all things. And so, Father, I pray that you would change us. May you draw us close to Christ as we study your word. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one is testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, and you have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For this reason he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted and that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted." Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We ask that you would help us now, and it 's in christ 's good name we pray amen well this this week and really leading to this 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 week, Hebrews chapter two, I think, has become one of my favorite chapters in all of the scriptures. I tend to say that about whatever chapter i 'm teaching on but but this is what I really mean at this time like i 'm serious this is this is really good. Um, one of these verses has brought me to the brink of tears multiple times this week. Just pondering it, um, I, I realize entering into chapter two that I I'm constantly struggling with this this tension, like an accordion of of how much how much information do we cover each week? Um, do we slow down and and really dig into every sort of nook and cranny of of, of the text, or or do we do we move it at sort of a fast pace so that we we get the bigger picture? If we go really slow, we sort of lose sight of what's happening. If we go really fast, then I realize how much we're missing along the way. And so I've decided that the best way to go through Hebrews, which is on par with Romans, second longest book in the as far as the epistles are concerned. Um, it would be the equivalent of going ten miles out in the ocean and going for a mile swim on the surface. I recognize that we're only getting so much to, to to be on that mile swim to to be able to explain the depth below you 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 can't and so i I recognize each week that that i'm only able to to give you about you know one pound of about 50 pounds of information that I've taken in. And I know the 50 pounds that I've taken in is, I'm only scratching the surface. And so it kills me this week because there's so much here, but we have to kind of keep moving. And so my prayer is that I would accomplish two things in the teaching of Hebrews is that I would leave you with sort of a, a, a bigger picture that you would have clarity over what's the message of Hebrews, and then the second thing I'd like to to you know get you guys to get you guys catched with, or so that you'd get the bug of that you want to know more, that you want to dive into the word that that you would you, your appetites be, would be wet for studying more of God's word, and that you'd really want to dig in and, and learn more because. Um, As one of my seminary professors once told me, he's like, I can only give you so much. The the mama bird that eats the food and chews it all up then spits a little bit out into the baby's mouth. That's all I'm doing here. Like, I I can't do what you need to do on your own, and that's to be in the Word of God. Um, All I can do is to sort of throw a little gasoline on the fire, hopefully, in your heart. Um, So to make sense of chapter (laughs) 2, I realized as I was wrestling with it this week, that there's some key words that that help me frame the passage to to, to figure out uh, where we're going. Now in, in the Greek, there's a a congregation that's called the Gar congregation. In the English, it's translated for. Um, it can be translated now or because. Sometimes it's it's left untranslated, which which isn't a big deal. I'm not. Uh, the English translations we have are all wonderful translations. And until you've studied the original language in a particular discipline for like 30 years, and you're invited to go on to a translation committee, then I'll take your criticism. <laughs> so take what I'm. So so the first one, four, verse five in the NIV, if you're reading out of that, which is a wonderful translation, they've opted not to translate four. So so you're not going to see the four there. Uh, but in my mind, there's there's six fours. Um, in our passage that I'll sort of highlight as we go along there are two therefores and whenever you see a therefore in the scripture you have to ask yourself what's the therefore therefore uh, because it's sort of conveying a uh, because of what I've just said this is what you need to take to heart so we have two of those in today's passage. Then throughout the text we see this word uh, subject or subjection or he. Uh, has He subjects them to something. So this idea of um, having a, something being subjected to something or being subjected to something is sort of a, a, a word that we need to keep attention of. It happens six times in here. And then four times in this passage, the word angels appear. Um, so with that, we come to verse 5. We see our first four, or most of us do. There is a gar here, sort of connecting what the author has set up to this point. He says, for he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. All right. We need to put on our Jewish thinking caps. Um, this book is very Jewish. Uh, chapters one and two, the author is making sort of a, one point that sort of flows throughout it, and it goes back to chapter 1, verse 4, having become much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So the author right out of the gate goes, he's making his case, or she, we don't know who the author is, um, but the author of Hebrews is is making this case that Jesus is greater than the angels. All of chapter 1, They, the author... Points to the deity of Jesus and the authority of who he is. And so angels are lower than him. But the Jewish mind, under the rabbis, they thought and argued. You see it in Jesus' teaching. It's all about questions and 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 sort of this this well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? They just go can go in circles arguing. And so the, the writer of Hebrews. As they've made this case that Jesus is greater than the angels, he recognizes that his hearers are being influenced by the temple, which is still up and running. We we believe that Hebrews was written between AD 65 and 69. The temple was destroyed in 70. The argument that they were hearing from the world around them is, okay, well, if you make this great case that the Messiah is greater than angels, but you have a problem. It's called the incarnation, which is not that Jesus at Christmas was created. It's that God stepped out of heaven. God, who was in eternity past, took on the form of man and became human at the holiday that we celebrate is Christmas. So now you have the problem of the incarnation. And so this Messiah that you're talking about, if he became man, now he's lower than the angels. And so you have a problem because if he became man, then he's no longer greater than the angels. This whole case that you're making is decimated. Now, all I'm doing is sharing with you the mind of the writer of this letter. And so the whole focus of the rest of this chapter is to show us that when Jesus became a man and he was in the the incarnation of his coming to earth, during that time... That didn't lessen his authority. That during this window, not only is he greater, but because of his incarnation, he's far greater than we could ever even imagine. And so he starts verse five. For he did not subject keyword two keywords three keywords four subject angels. So four. He's connecting the thought. He did not subject two angels. Don't lose that. To, that T O is a critical word. Because what he's saying is, he did not subject to angels the world to come. So this, this earth that we know is going to be done away with. We saw that previously in the last section, that he, that he created everything. He's going to roll up like a garment and set it aside, but he remains. And in this future world, the angels will have no place of authority. And so he alludes to the reality that in this future world that Jesus is going to have full authority. He also alludes to that if, if angels have authority in this future world, there is this, he alludes to the reality that angels have some authority in this world. From Ephesians, remember, we, we're, uh, what we wrestle with is not flesh and blood, but spirits and principalities, that, that Satan is, has authority in this earth. Satan is just an angel that's fallen, and he has a third of the angels sort of living and breathing and moving, and there's this spiritual battle taking a place in our midst that we don't know about. So the author, when he starts Ephesians, another great book, it's one of my favorites till today in Ephesians, <laughs> Hebrews. So we start Hebrews, God, after he spoke long ago to the Father's In the prophets, in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. Chapter two, verse one, for this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. He's trying to get us on track. He doesn't want us to drift from Christ. He wants us to be drawn to Christ. It's this wake-up call. I don't know who invented it, but it's one of the greatest things. I think the road up to Palomar has them. You know, if you're in your car and you're driving and you begin to drift, some roads have those little like slats in the side, and if your family's asleep, it is the best prank to do. Like I just always drift over there, and it's like feels like the whole car is going to shake apart. And everyone's like, ah, what's going on? It's like, well, I just wanted some company. <laughs> I think I shared that my alignment is off my car, but I don't know how that happened. <laughs> you know, it might be something to do with it. So the author is trying to like wake us up. Hey be, guys, pay attention to Jesus. He's greater than the angels. Concerning the future age, they'll have no more authority. Jesus will be fully in control. Verse 6, he says, but one has testified somewhere saying, I, I love this. This is like me when you quote a verse, oh, there's a psalm somewhere that says something. And I can find it in my Bible because my Bible just kind of opens where I want it to go. But I might not be able to give you the actual sight. He says, somewhere, somewhere it says something. He's going to quote from Psalm 8 verses 4 through 6, I think there's only like eight verses in Psalm 8. It is one of my favorite, it's, it's a beautiful psalm of David. And so he quotes from Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, and he says, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. Key word pops up again. You've crowned him with glory and honor. And you have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection, another key word, under his feet. So before we move forward in Hebrews, we have to pause here. I'm not going to turn back to Hebrews, or to Psalm 8. But if you were to turn back to Psalm 8, what you would discover is that King David wrote this psalm. And you get the feeling that King David is just like outside And it's a clear night, and you can just see all of the stars. And he's lost in sort of taking in creation. And as he looks out at the stars and creation and the heavens and the earth, he's blown away by the majesty of God. Like, who is this God that he can just speak? And all of this comes into existence. And as he evaluates creation... He begins to look upon himself. It's like that song we sang, uh, Who Am I? Like, who is David that God would even take notice of me? Like, how awesome is this creator that we have that he can create all of this and I'm just one little tiny speck in his creation and that he would still take notice of me. This whole psalm deals with David and his creator. So when we read this in the original context, it has nothing to do with the Messiah. It has everything to do with David and his Lord. So what is man that you remember him? He's thinking of himself. Or the son of man, he's thinking of himself, that you are concerned about him, that God cares for each one of us. How is this possible? He says you've made him for a little while lower than the angels. He recognized that in his creation... That David is a human is less than the angels, but we were created in the image of God. And it seems temporary to us that in the afterlife, things will be different. It says, you've crowned him with glory and honor. Here's the king of Israel writing. And have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection to his feet. He's, re- he's referencing Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, where Adam was told that all of creation has been placed under his authority and he's to till the land and, and make uh, food and be fruitful and multiply, that, that he's been told that humanity has been placed over all creation. So when what happens here in Hebrews, we, or I as a Bible teacher, we would totally frown upon what's happening here. What's about to happen is what happened in the original context has not at all anything to do with what he's about to teach us about. Not at all. Not, nothing. And so if we were to do that, I'd slap you on the heads and say, that's not how you handle scripture. But now the author of Hebrews is divinely led by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God gives another application of this original text, so now that we have it, there's an exception to exegesis, the rule of of Bible translation. And so the author of Hebrews, by the Spirit of God, is going to take this text, and he is going to use it to show us how Jesus fits what was said there. And so in verse 8, the second half of it, we see the second four, or whatever four number we're on. I didn't number them, but we have another four for in subjecting, keyword three times it'll appear here. For in subjecting all things to him, if we weren't skipping ahead and cheating, we would think that we're talking about David. But if we fast forward to verse 9, we'll see that the author is talking about, you'll see the phrase, namely Jesus. So he's actually speaking about Jesus. He's, he's getting us there. For in subjecting all things to him, He left nothing that is not subject to him. So the author of Hebrews is saying, the father has subjected all things to Jesus. He left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. This is a critical sentence in the Bible. We, as followers of Christ, we acknowledge that Jesus is Lord over all. We acknowledge that He's the creator and sustainer of the universe. But we run into problems when we turn on the TV or we read the newspaper. And we read last week that there's a bombing in England, that there's a car accident and somebody dies the bad stuff that creeps up in our world. And so this helps us. This, this helps us with a worldview that we understand that everything has been subjected to him, but now we don't yet see all things subjected to him. So while everything is in a, under Jesus's authority, we don't necessarily see it taking place. And when we go out into our community, we see something bad happen or somebody breaks into your house or steals your weed whacker. I still haven't let that go. that Somebody stole my weed whacker when I first moved into my house. Still looking for the guy. <laughs> we see the evil in the world. We see fallen humanity. The, the original readers saw the, the fallen humanity. If you'll turn with me over to Hebrews 11, the section that we know as the great heroes of the faith, at the end of Hebrews 11, starting in verse 35, this is what the early church was going through. So Jesus died in about AD 33. This letter is written in about AD 65 to 69. So we have a 30-year window. Over the last 30 years, this is some of the things that they were presently suffering with or that they had already suffered with. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Let that one sink in. That means that there were widows in the church who their husbands who took a stand for Christ, they were executed. They were killed. The widows are waiting to receive back their husband by way of the resurrection. That one day their husbands will be resurrected from the dead and that's when they'll receive their husbands back. Should give you goose pimples. But he goes on. And others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Let that one sink in. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men, the parenthetical statement here, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in the deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And these all, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. That one sink in. All authority given to Jesus, everything is in subjection to him. These people walked by faith, longing to see their Lord move. They never saw it in this lifetime. Does that mean that Jesus isn 't in authority overall? Absolutely not. We just might not see it in this lifetime authority, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not for apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. I'm going to stop there. We can go back to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews is, as they write, they introduce, he introduces a subject and then later develops it. So I kind of skipped ahead. But, but look what is said here, the second part of verse 8. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, but we do see him. We see Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, referencing Psalm 8, verse 7. Namely, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. It said back there in Psalm eight, not meant to be Jesus in the original context. This authored by divine inspiration is retranslating that for us. We see the same thing in Philippians chapter two, verse seven. That Jesus emptied himself, the kenosis, that he became man, that he suffered this shameful death. Following his death, he was buried, and then what happened? He rose from the dead, and Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Now he's seated on high at the right hand of the Father. Same thing here. We see this, this, this U-turn from heaven, down and then back up. But we do see him who was made a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, now the shot back up to the right hand of the Father, crowned with glory and honor. So why? So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It's the picture of a mom with a sick child. Take this medicine, honey. It'll make you feel better. And mom with her children's title, see, honey, it's not that bad. Reminds me of the old Lucille Ball. You guys, yeah, I love Lucy. Vegemita Midaman or whatever it was. Come on, do you guys watch Lucille Ball. Like we can talk about it. That's like, the, she's supposed to be demoing this stuff. And taste, I mean, I never tasted it, but the look on her face. Jesus went to the cross. We all are facing death. We all will face death unless the Lord comes back beforehand. Jesus stepped down to earth and he went to the cross. He experienced death for us. So that we might have life in Him, it's beautiful. Hebrews two ten another four for it was fitting for Him. I can't go to death for you guys. There's only one who it fits. It fits Him, the Messiah. For whom are all things, and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. There's so much here, and I have to like fly over this. And there's you guys. There's so much you can study here and take in and absorb and get into your hearts and understanding. Jesus is. It was fitting for him. For whom are all, wait, for whom are all things and through whom are all things. So basically by Jesus, what he's already said, all things are created. And not only did he create all things in the heavens and the earth, but all things are for him. That this one, this creator, he humbles himself and he becomes a man and he tastes death for us. In bringing many sons to glory, that because he did that, we can trust in him, and we can be freed from the bondage of sin. Beautiful, but it gets better. But we have this phrase that I have to deal with: to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. You say, Gunnar, I thought Jesus—he's perfect. We're told in Hebrews 4:15, which we're like, we have a high priest that's been tempted every way, but without sin. So. If he's perfected through sufferings, how do we deal with this? I thought you said he was God in eternity past. He was. He he became man. So what does it mean to perfect the author of their salvation? How was Jesus perfected? Now think about this. The Garden of Gethsemane, we studied this a few weeks or months ago, some time ago. What did he pray? Father, if there's any way that this cup could pass for me, let it pass. But not my will, but your will. If he allowed that cup to pass, there would be no cross. There would be no penalty, pay, or there be no. Uh, our sin would not have been paid for, and thus we would still be in the lurch. But our Savior became perfect because He followed through with the will of God, and He went all the way through the cross, and we now have this perfect Savior that made the ultimate sacrifice for us that none of us could have made in our own behalf. And it all happened through his suffering, moving along because we can't go, we we could talk about this for a long time. Verse 11, another four. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are from one Father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Brethren. Saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. This will blow your mind or did mine. You guys all know my little boys are crazy. They're into this show called Kratz, something, Wild Kratz. Somebody knows the show. It's these two brothers. So now my boys are all into like sperm whales and whales, and they have all of these facts. Like, how do you guys know this about whales? And it's to show of these two brothers, the Krat brothers, I guess. And they go around, and they start out, and they say, hey, bro, hey, bro, and they're talking to each other because they're brothers. So now my kids, my boys, are all into sperm whales and, and other animals and cheetahs and stuff. But I noticed that when we lock the door at night and they're in there going to do whatever they're doing, we hey bro, you want to jump off the bread? Yeah, bro, that sounds great. And so now they're like referring to each other as bro, and it warms my heart. Like I know that there are deeper relationships in this life, but there's something about a brother, you know, like two bros. Tomorrow I'm gonna go to the cemetery and I'm gonna visit some of my brothers that have fallen. I'm going to meet other brothers of mine who served alongside with them. And this term bro or brother, it it is a a strong term of endearment. endearment. That if, if somebody was to sneak into this group and try to claim that they were a part of the brotherhood and they were not, I'm more refined, but there are guys that would basically get into a fight with the individual for claiming something that they are not. The reason I bring this up, the point is that this is huge. Okay, God, we have the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father sent the Son to the earth. He lived a perfect life. He went to the cross on our behalf, having never sinned. He was buried, and then he rose from the grave. And we're told following the resurrection, he now calls us brothers. How can this be? Look, it's right here for this. For both he who sanctifies, that's Jesus. He sanctified us. He, through his blood, has made us white as snow. So he's the one sanctifying. We're the ones that are being sanctified. We all now have one father through him. And that's the reason that he's not ashamed to refer to you and I, if you're in Jesus, as brother. Brother. Powerful. He goes on. Therefore, verse fourteen. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, we're now you know, flesh and blood stick together, right? Family, like now we're in the family with Jesus. He's our brother. He himself, likewise, likewise partook of the same. This is the incarnation that he took on flesh. We have a Lord that identifies with us that through death, he might render powerless. Him who had the power of death, that's the devil. Through the cross, the devil is knocked out of the game. The race is over. He might still be playing his game, but the game is over. Jesus has conquered Satan. He has conquered death. And then we come to the most beautiful verse in the New Testament, as far as I can tell this week. It's brought me to tears multiple times this week and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So here's subject again. And who's subjected to who? Humanity is subject to the fear of death. We're in slavery because we fear dying. There are people who say, "Oh, well, I'm not afraid of dying," and I, well, good on you. <laughs> I've been facing death at a, from a very young age. Death seems to follow me, or I bump into it all the time. I'm going to go visit little white stones where my dear comrades have died in combat tomorrow. I'll go to my grandparents who have a little stone over them, or their remains. Ecclesiastes seven two tells me that it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting because at the end, like every man considers it. I'm hacking it towards the end. But we're forced to consider where our life is going. You go to a party. I la- Yesterday was so much fun. I really didn't even ponder life and death during the parade, during the serving of coffee. A little bit during the rodeo, I pondered life and death when I saw the, the bull riders, man. I don't know. Oh, thank you. But when I go to the cemetery, when I take my kids there and I start talking about these guys who are my friends that are now, they're my age. And they're buried there. I'm forced to come to the ultimate. Like, what is this life? We're not designed to deal with death. Um, I was reminded of C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, this week when he talks and thinks through life and death. He reasons that it whether a young person dies in combat at the age of 18 or an elderly person at the age of 100 dies, we still grapple with life and death. And it seems unfair to us, whether you're 100 or whether you're 18. This week I was asked to go visit a man who was 89 years old in the hospital terminal. I thought I was going to go there for like 15, 20 minutes. I ended up spending three hours with him. I thought I was going there to encourage him and he was giving me a lesson on life and dying and living. He had me laughing. He had me crying. It was probably one of the most beautiful three hours I've had in a long time. Everybody, oh, thank you for coming to visit him. It's like, no, no, thank you for allowing me to have this time with him. Like I walk in there, the nurses are like kissing him, this old cowboy. I'm like, whoa, like his daughter's putting on like gloss for his lips. I'm like, oh, you have dry lips? He's like, no, no, I just like to keep my lips soft for the nurses. I'm like, ha, ha, (laughs) funny. Then the nurses come in, they're all kissing him. Oh, I'm like, you're crazy. And then I'm like sitting there trying to figure out the situation. But he's got this huge smile. And I'm like, I thought this was a bad situation. He's like, no, brother. I'm going to die with a smile on my face. And I'm like crying. God, I, I, you are teaching me more about death. And we're just, like, enjoying life. And at one point, the doctor is talking behind him, and it's, like, an important conversation because I'm eavesdropping. And so I'm kind of, like, trying to get out of the way so he can, like, listen to they're talking about him. And he, he's like, what are you doing? You're standing on one leg. You're trying to get out of here. I said, no, 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 no. I, this is a conversation back here. You, you, you probably want to listen to this. He's like, no, no, no. They're just trying to figure out what size box I need to leave this place. He's like, I don't need to be involved in that conversation. It's not in my business. <laughs> it's like, well, okay. But I'm sitting there listening to this guy, and then there's a doctor is going over his like, wishes for, like, do not resuscitate. And to hear him say, he's like, I'm already gone full of life. I'm the youngest one in my litter. And I'm thinking, you're 89 years old. When do... He's like, oh, just for these lungs, if I can just get rid of this cough, I'll be fine. And I'm thinking, you're not fine. And there's this sort of like, I'm ready to go see my Lord. I'm ready to go see my mama. I'm ready, to, but but I'm not done here. And I'm studying this passage. How beautiful is this verse? I don't know about you, but I've been sure in the slavery of fearing death because what, what happens when we die? Like Why is it that we're wired to not be able to cope with the reality that we're going to die? I can't, my dogs, my chickens, none of them are wrestling with like the end of life things. And I know that... I'm on this conveyor belt, and it's going faster and faster and faster the older I get. But I thank God that my understanding of what Christ has done for me on the cross has given me greater appreciation that I'm no longer subject to the slavery of fearing death because he has conquered death for me. I could dwell on this for a while, but I've told you we've got to fly over it. For assuredly, another 4, verse 16, he does not give help to angels. The bigger picture, remember, we're talking about angels. We're talking about Jesus is greater than the angels. The Jewish mindset. but this guy who you claim to be the Messiah, he gave up on his divinity when he became man, and so angels are greater than him. And the author, if we are honest, has made a powerful statement that in the incarnation of Christ, he didn't weaken himself. He became all the more powerful. And he goes on to say, for assuredly, this Messiah, this Jesus, he's not there to help the angels. But he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. And so quickly I'm going, am I a descendant of Abraham because I need help? In the Abrahamic covenant found in Genesis, we're told that Abraham was promised, Genesis 12 to 15, that as the stars were, he would have these descendants. We get to Romans chapter 4, the whole of Romans chapter 4, but probably Romans 4.16, we see that the children of Abraham are those who have trusted God by faith. And so if you're in Christ, you're a descendant of Abraham. You and your big old Gentile self have been grafted into to become a descendant of Abraham. And so that implies that Jesus, the Messiah, the creator and sustainer of the world is there to help you. Verse 17, therefore. Second, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren, the incarnation, again, in all things. So that, key two words, always, he might become a merciful, what is mercy, withholding something that you deserve. Think of a spanking. You deserve a spanking from God, but he withholds his hand. And faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So right now, the author is now introducing a new subject. As we end chapter two, the discussion of angels is ending. We're going to get to Moses. We're going to get to the priesthood. Remember, we can't lose sight That the temple is up and running and operating and there are priests there who are sacrificing animals for the sinfulness of man. Not only for the sinfulness of man, but they are priests who are going in there sacrificing an animal for their own sins and for the sins of the people. And now the author is going to show, we're getting there, that Jesus is greater than the priest. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than than everything and so we see that this priest this faithful high priest it's greater than Melchizedek which we'll get to later we see that Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest beautiful in all things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people you need to understand what this word propitiation means our sin has created this huge chasm between us and God. God is holy, we are not. God can't commingle with unholiness. And so we're separated from God. And so the wrath of God is going to bring consequence, punishment on sin, because he is holy. He, has, he would be an unjust judge if he did not. So he sends his son, Jesus, to the cross. And on the cross, we're told that the wrath of God is poured out upon him. This is the punishment that is required for my sin, for your sin, from all sin ever, is poured out upon Jesus. Propitiation is a big word that literally means satisfied. So that as God pours out his wrath upon Jesus on the cross, eventually that wrath was satisfied that the punishment needed for the sin in the world was done with. And so now we're faced with, you're not going to go to heaven or hell based on your sin. You're going to go to heaven or hell based on what you do with this Jesus who paid for your sins. And this author of Hebrews is trying to get us back, draw to Jesus, stop drifting from him, because he made propitiation for your sins for my sins. Verse 18, another four, for since he himself was tempted and that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Another allusion to Hebrews 4.15, that we have this great high priest that's been tempted in all things, yet with, is it without sin? And we can enter in to his throne of grace. It's be- beautiful. So all of this is sort of Introductory. So as we conclude, as we sort of wrap up here, back to Hebrews 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, God who has spoken to us in his Son. This is the key. God has spoken to us in Christ. That is how he is speaking to us today. The author is painstakingly making the case that Jesus is greater than all things and therefore is worthy of of being listened to. Chapter 2, verse 1, for this reason we must pay closer attention to that which we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. So I plead with you, if you haven't trusted in Christ as your Savior, examine these claims. Wrestle with who Jesus is. We we all will face death and we need to contend with what happens beyond. And the Bible makes great claims about Jesus and most of us write them off without actually doing any sort of like study or research. This isn't blind faith. Historically, there's so much. Uh, Quite frankly, I think there's there's way more historically documented about who Jesus is than what uh, others would say. This whole theory of evolution, like I, I don't think that there's, That that takes way more faith, in my opinion, than what the Bible and history shares with us about who this Jesus is. And so my prayer is that if you haven't come to trust him, that you would reach that place where you could put your faith in him. And for those of us who have come to faith in Christ, this is where I want us to wake up. Wake up. There's so much speaking at you. We need to pay attention to what he said. We need to get into the word. We need to grow. We need to allow him to speak to us. Draw to him. Don't drift from him. If you need prayer, come forward at the end of the service. But let's pray right now. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. I thank you, Lord, for the majesty of Christ. Father, we're told that we only know and see in part. But Lord, I pray that as we study your word, as we come to know what you have revealed about Jesus more clearly, that you would drop us to our knees in worship of you. Father, that you would expose areas in our hearts and lives that we're clinging on to, our sinful desires, our flesh. Break us free from that bondage so that we could worship and serve you with all that we are. Father, we thank you for the truth that is shared with us about Jesus destroying death, breaking us from the bondage of slavery, our fear of death. Help us, Lord, to know this more and more each day. We love you, Lord. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.